Good morning. The book of Jonah, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, I also am not Stephen White. Uh, my name is Alan Vance. I'm part of the B team here. Uh, no, it's my pleasure to be with you all this morning. And um, um, yeah, let me just let's pray again, just briefly before we get started. Lord, we thank you for a, a chance to be here together as your people. We thank you for your word. And um, Lord, we just acknowledge that, um, that we're hungry for your word, Lord, that uh, like Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but, what, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And um, Lord, we, just, we all come from different places, um, different needs, different situations, joys and sorrows, um, peace and anxiety, uh, guilt and freedom. And, um, but Lord, we all need you no matter where we are. And we pray that, that through your word today, you would speak to our hearts and uh, that we would be made more into the image of Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. So, um, We've been in Jonah for a while now. I, I lost track, but I think we're in week five or six here. And um, we're finally to the part that everybody knows about, which is Jonah in the fish. Um, we've, we've seen Jonah be called by God to go to preach to the Ninevites. We've seen him run away, go down to a boat, try to sail in the opposite direction. We saw God send a storm after him. And um, ultimately, Jonah get thrown into the sea, and um, and now Jonah has been swallowed up by the fish. And the the chapter two is basically um, it says it starts off it says um, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So this is Jonah's prayer. It's kind of hard to imagine. 
uh, Jonah in the belly of the fish composing this very beautiful um, poetic uh, prayer. Um, so I imagine that this, the, the, the poetic style of the prayer was probably added at some point after Jonah got out of the belly of the fish. But, but, um, but I also assume that these are the thoughts and the emotions that Jonah was going through um, in that situation. So um, what we see here in, this, in, this, uh, in these 10 verses um, is, is very close to what we understand to be the gospel. Uh, some of the big themes that we see here are, are gospel themes. Um, and primarily what I'm talking about are the themes of death, and salvation. Um, there's this really strong death theme in these 10 verses. Um, verse 2, Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is a word that's often used for hell. Um, definitely the place of the dead. He says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Verse 3, he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Um, you know, the water and flood in biblical imagery is very often used as a symbol of death, you know, with Noah and the flood, with the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Uh, waters are often a symbolic of God's judgment. And, and, no, and uh, Jonah recognizes that he is under that judgment. Uh, verse 4, he says, And I said, I am driven away from your sight. This is, a, this is a description of spiritual death. Um, just like Adam and Eve were driven away from the garden after their sin. Um, verses 5 and 6, he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is death imagery, okay? All this death imagery. And I think the point is that Jonah understood that he deserved to die. He had rebelled against God. He had completely disobeyed, gone the opposite direction when God called him. He understood that he deserved to die. And I think that he was thought that he was going to die. You know, there he is in the water, sinking, swirling, in the midst of the storm and the seaweed wrapped around his head, I think he was pretty sure that he was a goner. And then the fish comes along, right? God appoints, or it says, um, yeah, verse 17 of chapter one, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So the fish swallows him and he understands that this is an act of God. You know, he understands that this is not, you know, a, a, just a chance coincidence. Um, this is not the instrument of his death. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about being afraid of dying in the belly of the fish. He recognizes the fish as salvation. Um, we see the deliverance theme. Um, as strongly as we see the death theme. Verse two, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. So he's in the fish 
and he sees that God has answered his prayer. Um, again, verse two, I cried and you heard my voice, right? God has come to his rescue. Verse four, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, right? How is he going to look upon God's holy temple unless he makes it back to land and ultimately makes his way back to Jerusalem? Verse six, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Death and deliverance, right? This is, this is a big part of what we understand to be the message of the gospel, that we are all sinners. We've rebelled against God, just like Jonah. We like to look, read this book and kind of think of Jonah as the dumb, bad guy, but we're all like that, right? We all rebel in our own ways. And as a result, we are under God's judgment. And we also recognize that like he sent the, the big fish to save Jonah, God has also sent Jesus to rescue us from the death that we deserve. Um, so the story of Jonah here, it has the appearance of showing us an example of, of conversion. Right, it's a salvation story. It's the appearance of a of a turning from rebellion from God to recognition of God's work in Jonah's life, and Jonah's promise to serve Him. And if the story stopped with the end of chapter two, we would say this is a nice story about God intervening in someone's life to get them right with God. But it doesn't end here. Uh, as we read further, I don't know if you have yet, but as we go further, and I won't steal the thunder of the next preachers, but we find out that Jonah really hasn't changed. Um, after this rescue, this near-death experience and this rescue from, from death, um, Jonah really doesn't change. He's still rebellious. The story ends with him in the middle of an argument with God. So the question is, what went wrong? Why did, why did Jonah's conversion not really stick? So I want to I want to focus as we move forward really on this question about for us you know what what comes after our conversion experience what is what is our Christian life all about um, you know we understand that we've been saved from sin death God's judgment but what are we saved for. What did Jonah think that he was saved for? And how did he respond? And I think the key, the answer to that question, at least in my understanding of this passage, is, is in verse 9. 
Um, verse 9, at the end of this, this kind of prayer of Jonah's, he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this all sounds so good, right? Um, Jonah's thankful, right? With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice. Um, he's, instead of running away from God, he now promises to sacrifice. There seems to be a change of heart. He promises to keep his vow. She doesn't exactly tell us what it is, but we assume that was that he's going to start obeying God instead of disobeying, rather than running away. So it all sounds really good. But then, as we keep going, everything basically falls apart and kind of goes south. So the question is why? And my, my suggestion to you is that is, it is in, the, the key is in the vow. The key is in the vow. Um, Jonah makes this vow in verse 9. It makes a vow to sacrifice in response to his rescue. He's happy for his rescue. He's thankful. So he wants to repay God's kindness to him by doing something for God, right? He wants to repay God's kindness by doing something, by making a sacrifice. And again, presumably vows to obey God the next time. But the glaring omission here is that there is no repentance. There's no confession there's no remorse expressed over the, the sin and rebellion that was committed. Um, no regret for his action, for his blatant rejection of God's will in his life. In other words, there, there appears to be no transformation in the heart of Jonah. Rather, Jonah treats it like a business transaction. God has done something for Jonah, so now Jonah wants to do something for God. Jonah owes God for the favor. This is the, this is the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of theology, right? And we all know this kind of, of relationship well. We, all, we do it every day, right? Um, our, our employment, right? We, we have a job. We do a job for our employer. Our employer needs our work, and we get paid for it, right? We do something for him or her, and he does something for us. We do the work. We get, they, they do the paying, um, shopping, right? It's a transaction. I go to the grocery store. I need a loaf of bread. I get my loaf of bread. 
and the grocer gets his money, right? It's a transaction, okay? You help me, I help you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. It's the way our whole society works is on this transactional relationship um, way of doing things. The problem is that's not how it works with God. It's not how it works. Uh, first of all, we can never repay. We can never repay what God has done for us. Our debt is infinite. If we could repay it, Jesus would not have had to die for us. Our, our, our debt is so great that it took the death of the Son of God to pay it. We can't pay it ourselves. We can't pay God back for what he's done for us. To act like or even think that we can pay that back through our actions diminishes the value of what Jesus has done for us. Salvation is a gift. It's the only way we can get it is that it's a gift. Romans 6.23, verse many of you probably know, says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, right? The wages of sin is death. We earn death, right? We earn death, and when we get it, it's what we've, what we've earned. It's an even trade. But eternal life in Christ is a gift that we cannot earn. It can only be given. If we try to pay for it, it is no longer a gift, right? If you pay for it, it's no longer a gift. To try to pay for it, in fact, is insulting to the giver. We're not, if we try to pay for it, we're not receiving a gift, we're, we're buying a product, right? Imagine, imagine that you give a gift to someone, right? Um, your spouse, your child, parent, you know, a dear friend, a loved one. And you give a gift that you've really poured yourself into, right? Maybe something that you've made, right? Some of you are good with your hands, sewing or woodwork or whatever. Something that you've poured hours and hours of time and effort into it. Or maybe it's something very, something very expensive and you saved up money, you know, for a long period of time to be able to buy some precious thing, you know, some beautiful piece of jewelry or whatever, you know, give, you want to give your, a car to your child. And you give this gift You just, you say, I'm giving you this gift because I just want you to know how much I love you. And then the one who receives the gift reaches into their wallet, grabs a $20 bill and says, here, now we're even. How would you feel? How would you feel about that? That this act of love is trampled on. 
right? The gift is trampled on if we try to pay it back, if we act like we can pay it back with some miserable, small effort on our, behalf, on our part. This expression of love that we have reached out to try to express to another person has turned into a business transaction, right? That's what it's like for us to act or to think as if we can pay God back for what he's done for us through, through Jesus. Our salvation, the eternal life that God gives is a gift by the grace of God. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. One of the great doctrines of the church is that we are saved by grace through faith. Those of you who've been in the church very long know this. We are saved by grace through faith. We've heard it many times. And the problem is that we know we're saved by God's grace, but we, we think we're supposed to live the Christian life by our own strength, right? It's like we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by works, right? If we believe in salvation by grace, and then we think, well, now I'm going to live my life to pay God back by obeying and following him. That's sanctification by works. That's paying God $20 for salvation. Like Jonah, we understand that God saved us, so now it's time for us to do something for God. And what does it mean for us to do something for God? Well, we usually think of, you know, we go to church for God. You know, we worship for God. We, we obey him. Maybe we serve and love our neighbors for God. And of course, those are all good things that we, that we should do and that, mo that many of us do. Um, but if we think that we're doing those because that is somehow helping God, we are completely missing the point. God doesn't need our help. God does not need our help. When we, go, when we come to church, it doesn't help God. When we worship, it doesn't help God. Do we, do we think God is insecure? You know, he needs us to worship him to make him feel better about himself. God doesn't need our worship. He is perfectly complete, perfectly content perfectly satisfied in himself. God is God. He can do what he wants. He can have what he wants. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. We need him. That's the story of the Bible, is we need him. And that God is loving and kind and gracious and pours out his love for us. His, his love for us is not to fulfill some need he has to be appreciated. It's an overflow of the, of the goodness and the love and the kindness and grace that is who he is. 
so everything that we that we do for God we don't do for God's benefit we don't do them for God's benefit he doesn't need us to do them we do the things that God calls us to do because God is good because God is good and what God calls us to do what God invites us to do is for our good it's for our good why do we why do we worship again it's not because God you know needs us to appreciate him you know he's feeling kind of down about himself and so we need to tell him that he's great no God's not insecure God does not need our help to feel good about himself. So why does he command us to worship? Why does God command us to worship? And I will argue that God's command for us to worship is one of the most loving things that he can do. Because what he's doing, when he commands us to worship, he is commanding us to treat that which is most valuable as if it were that which is most valuable, right? His command to worship is just pointing out that God himself is the only thing worthy of worship. The only thing that we should set our hearts and affections on is God because he is perfectly good. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. And so by commanding us to worship him, he commands us to fix our hearts on what is good and pure and true and right and to not settle for anything less. To worship anything less than God is to be deceived. And so God commands us to worship him, to avoid that deception. Same with all of God's commands. They're not for his good, they're for, they're for our good. Right? When we obey God, it's, God doesn't store up points. God, God's not getting some addition to his bank account when we obey. Why does God want us to obey? Does it make him feel better? Does it help him in some way? God doesn't need our help. God's not deficient in anything. Our obedience doesn't help him out. He doesn't need it. We need it. We need it. Our obedience is for our good. God's commands are for our good. God's law is good. I think one of the great victories of the devil is to is this sense that he has created that that the that law is oppressive. That law is harsh and and heavy and oppressive. God's law is is good. I mean just think about the 10 commandments, right? You know, mentally, when I think, when I say the word Ten Commandments, I have this picture in my mind of, I think, Moses, of this angry man with these stone tablets, you know, throwing them. 
And this, and this imagery for me, when I talk about, when I think about the Ten Commandments, is like there's this heavy, negative thing. And I think this is this huge victory for, for the devil that we have this negative thought associated with the commands of God because God's commands are good, right? Think about the Ten Commandments. Imagine a world where there would be where there's no lying, where there's no stealing where there's no killing, where, there, where marriages are characterized by faithfulness, lifelong love between two people. Uh, that world sounds like a good world to me. What's oppressive about that? What's harsh and heavy about that? God's laws are beautiful and good and they're for our good. But I will say, as a means to earn God's favor, God's law is terrible because we can't do it. Because we're broken. Ever since that first sin by Adam and Eve, we're, we're broken. We have this natural bent to rebel against God, just like Jonah. God says, do this, we go the opposite way. Why? Because we're broken. We're broken. We're not the way we should be. We all know that, right? We all know there's something wrong within our hearts that we, we do things that we don't want to do. We do things that we know we shouldn't do, and yet we, we do them. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own rules. We want to live the way we want to live. And we are forever stuck in that state until the grace of God breaks in and sets us free from that deception. I've been reading a book uh, by a guy named Sky Jatani. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. Uh, but he's, he's written a book called With. With. And the point of his book is that we are created for life with God. That we're created for life with God. That that's the overarching message of the whole Bible. When you start in, in Eden, you know God creates this world and he puts man, Adam and Eve there and God is there with them. God dwells together with them in the garden. And you, when we get to the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation, you know, the end of the story is that God takes us back to a garden and that, and that we are there with him. I'll read this just beautiful passage from Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. The whole story, the whole biblical story starts with God and man living together and ends with God and man together. 
Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. The Great Commission, when Jesus sends his disciples out into the world and he promises, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This, this, this withness, this being with God is the, this repeating theme hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the scriptures. Jesus came into the world and died for us so that we would be with God and he with us. We're created for that, for life with God. Um, in his book, I won't go too much into the details, but the Sky Jatani talks about the fact that we often, we miss the purpose of our relationship with God. And he describes four different categories and I'll try to give you just a brief, but he, he talks, he says, you know, we, some of us see our life as coming from God uh, or life over God or life for God or life under God. Different ways that we approach God. Um, you know, that if we obey certain things that we'll, we'll get certain blessings, right? Or if we have enough faith, we will, you know, get answers to our prayers. Or that if we follow certain biblical principles, that, that we'll get, you know, success in our business or in our marriage or in our child raising or whatever. And ultimately, the problem with all these different ways of approaching God is that they all, we, we use God to get what we want or we're trying to use God to get what we want. God becomes a means to an end. You know, whether it be a good marriage or good kids or wealth or health or whatever it may be. But God's purpose is not necessarily that we have health or that we have wealth or even that we have a good marriage or easy kids or you name it. I mean, God has eternal purposes where all of, all of the wrong things of this world will be made right. But in this life right now, God doesn't give us any promises about those things. And the, the purpose that God has for us in this life is that we would be with him, that we would be with him and that he would be with us. And his promise is that if he is with us, that that is enough. If God is truly with us, then it doesn't matter what calamities we have to go through, what sicknesses, what failures, what disappointments. God has given himself to us that we might be with him. And that, that presence of God in our lives is enough to see us through whatever darkness and difficulties that we have to go through.
And we are promised that God will be with us. That's the great promise of the Bible. We are promised that that is enough. And that is, and that is the great invitation. That's the great invitation of the gospel. In the Old Testament, we read in, in the prophet Micah, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Or similarly, Jesus says in Matthew 11, also along the lines of being with him, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke, you know, is something that is shared by two animals. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jonah tried to run from God and then he tried to do something for God. But it seems he never accepted the invitation to life with God. That's the great tragedy of Jonah. So the message of the book of Jonah is don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. He's the anti-hero. He's the prophet that didn't know God and did not walk with God. Don't be like Jonah. Accept the invitation to life with God through Jesus Christ. You will find that if you have him, you have everything you need. Let's pray together. Lord, we tend to wander, as a hymn says. Um, I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And yet, Lord, you are bent on bringing us back to yourself. Thank you that you are, you are like the hound of heaven that pursues us, that calls us that won't let us flee even as we try. Help us, Lord, to have the grace to accept that invitation to life with you. And help us, Lord, to prove that if we have you, we have enough. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>